You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. I come across the coolest people on Twitter. And one of those cool people is Zoe Todd, um, who is the fish philosopher. And I love that. And another thing that I love, I was going through, uh, we have a questionnaire because, you know, of course we do. Um, and one of the things that Zoe mentions in the questionnaire, because I asked, you know, what kind of books, you know, do, you know, should, or would you like to recommend? Because I'm obsessed with books. And, and, and you mentioned uh, Amy Cesaire's discourse on colonialism, among other things. And I love that essay so very much. It's, I, a friend of mine recommended it to me. I'd never been exposed to it before. Uh, I don't know why. And I live tweeted my reading of it because it was just like, it's just like phrase after phrase of just this gorgeous language, completely dismembering, you know, white settler ideas of colonialism. And it's just, it's just an, it's just an, it's just an extraordinary essay. That is so interesting. It's been brought, I haven't read it yet, but it is on my uh i just it's a quick read it's like what maybe an hour because it's not very long um but it's just absolutely brilliant um i feel like and and then fanon you mentioned him too and everybody i read mentions fanon and i think it's inevitable i'm gonna have to is he really dense and hard to read because that's it depends which things you read, I think. Okay. So, so I've gone back and started rereading um, Wretched of the Earth just to sort of, because it's really focuses on, you know, how to decolonize. And, but I think, um, yeah, that's where I'm going back to. But I mean, obviously so much of his work has shaped a lot of the current scholarship, especially mm-hmm. in the US and around critical race theory and thinking through anti-Black racism. And so, yeah, I, I felt like uh, I needed to go back and and re-engage with him, especially now that I have more grasp on sort of like the issues that he's talking about. And, you know, I tried reading him in my PhD and I, I brought him into my thesis, but you know, that was like seven years ago. So <laughs> I, I have, you know, different questions now and, and different things that I want to be responsible to. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are those things? Cause you, you through a lot, like you've been pretty open about it on Twitter, about, you know, kind of your, your hopes when you went into graduate school and then your experiences in the academy. So how, what are you bringing to, you know, to Cesare and Fanon, which really isn't going to be the focus. I'm just curious, yeah. um, you, you know, because we reread things and, and they're different when we come back to them because we're different. Yeah. So I came to both of their, you know, like scholarship at the end of my PhD when I went to defend my thesis and it was, it was a very, uh, difficult experience because the work I was doing wasn't really in line with the kind of anthropology that was being done in that space in the UK at the time. Um, But I did have a sympathetic internal examiner and she said, you wrote a thesis of, like you wrote an ethnography of colonialism. And so what if we just reorganize this and you open with all the decolonial theory? Um, And I was like, okay. And that gave me the okay to then go and bring in these decolonial scholars and just sort of unapologetically uh, center that because otherwise 
you know, they were trying to take me down the path of, um, at the time in the early 2010s, like it was really, you know, multi-species ethnography and like these like environmental anthropology sort of discourses were happening that were like potentially useful, but they weren't attending to like racism <laughs> within the academy and they weren't attending to indigenous people as theorists in our own right. And um, so like my work was not fitting into what they thought anthropology was. And so that was how I came around. And really it's um, the work of Zakia Iman Jackson and her work on post-humanism and sort of rejecting how that's been framed by white scholars, that was what brought me in. So I really have to credit her writing. And she's also how I came to start reading Sylvia Winter. Like all, you know, I didn't find very much useful in my training in the UK, but it was the work I started to encounter after when I started to say like, well, how can I actually be accountable? Um, and then it started reading like black feminist scholars and then, then everything started to open up. And, and I also, that was when I started engaging with indigenous legal scholars uh, in Canada as well. And then that was what shifted me. So anthropology was a hard experience to do a PhD in, but I'm still, you know, it, it shaped me like it's, it's, it has undoubtedly like set me on the path I'm on. So I'm not like, I, I think I'm at peace with how hard it was, but I'm also so grateful that I got, it's almost like I got to do a postdoc afterwards, just reading all the people that I should have been reading in my mm. PhD, but that they weren't teaching. Um, Cause I remember at one point in my PhD saying like, well, why aren't we reading Fanon? And someone I'm laughing out of the discomfort of it. Someone was like, oh, that stuff's really dated. And, you know, and that just shows you where white scholars were circa like 2013. But I'll tell you, so many of them are now saying like they're decolonizing anthropology. So, so, you know, it all comes, you know, uh, back into sort of, um, you know, relationship. But yeah, so I'm very grateful like that Amy Cesar, Franz, I'm not pretending that I, that I have read all of their work or, but I'm trying really hard to be accountable to their work and then how their work is like, so many people now, really brilliant people are in conversation with their work. So I wanna be accountable to those spaces. You had talked about, and this is this is making me think of something you had talked about before, Sarah Ahmed, who talks about citational relationship. And we have talked with, um, and I'm spacing on her name right now, but um, a Maori uh, academic. Remember the one about um, doing a PhD without quoting any white men? Yes. That's oh. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, not to get on Twitter. Like she had thrown out this tweet about how she was going to do a PhD without quoting any white men. And we're like, what? Me too. Thank you. And then she had kind of introduced me to Sarah Ahmed and Sarah's work on, on citational relationship. Um, which in my own book, I think a lot about um, because I'm mentioning like, you know, this book and that book and, and how these authors and thinking carefully about who I'm citing, you know, because two people say the same similar things, but do I really want to cite the white guy who said it or do I want to cite the indigenous women who say it, but a little bit differently uh. and in a different context? So, and then does that then tie in bias when we are doing that? Have you how 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 have you been grappling with that? You know what I mean? Even even that piece of it because of what we are told in society we should be putting down and who should be valued as the ones to be cited. Um, well, in my own work, I'm 
uh, like Sarah Ahmed, she wouldn't know this, but she kind of saved my life because she was another one of those people whose work I encountered kind of near the end of that process. And, um, and when I realized like, I don't have to cite all these miserable old white men, <laughs> like she was modeling it, you know, and, um, and that was a real, like, it was the fall of 2014 was a real turning point for me. Cause I kind of wrote this blog post that went viral about this kind of turn in, in anthropology. And, um, and then it, it started to get attention and, 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 you know, and some people were really unhappy with it and telling me like, I didn't understand the literature and blah, blah, blah. But somehow I connected with Sarah Ahmed on Twitter in that period. And, and she, you know, like, I don't know her personally, but she kind of gave me the confidence to just sort of go back and cite indigenous people you know, and, and like, so I quit trying to impress all these like old white anthropologists and, and that has like continued to grow. Um, and I remember at my thesis defense, like this is, you know, this is 2016, they leaned in close and they were like, why would you come all the way over here to like a world-class environmental anthropology program? And almost none of the people here show up in your thesis. And I like, I received that, like this, like, you know, like it was like a blow. And I remember I like gathered, just gathered myself and, you know, we get everything that led up to that moment was just so hard. And I, I, I remember I just like gathered myself and like steadied myself against the table. And I, I kind of leaned in and I spoke very softly. So they had to lean in. And I said, because the experience of working here was so hard and I came here in good faith, you know, as an indigenous woman to work with people who work on, you know, similar topics and with our communities. And it wasn't a good experience. And I didn't see people working with like, with kindness and reciprocity. And so I resolved that the only way I could honor the stories that my friends and interlocutors shared with me when I was working in their community in the Western Arctic was to tell those stories in connection with indigenous thinkers and with black feminist thinkers. And, and, um, and I went on and on and on and they finally were like, okay, 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 we get it. <laughs> <laughs> But I really, like, I really had to say it, you know, like that, you know, I wasn't there to just reproduce that program. And like, and you know, and I don't want to harp on, you know, programs are programs, they reproduce themselves. And, and, you know, and like, it's not like people were malicious per se, it was just they were like, fulfilling a role that they thought they had to fulfill, which was like to discipline me and mold me in a certain way. And I wasn't molding in the way they wanted. And I was, you know, trouble. <laughs> so, you were a killjoy. I was a killjoy <laughs> and a troublemaker. <laughs> and so, and, and I, I just, I love this because one, there's such bravery in that Zoe, like you just, you just did that, you know? <laughs> Right, and look at you. I, I just love it. That is that that is when you are deadly. You know what I mean? You yeah. come up yourself when you can show up and just say, leaning in, so that they lean into you, and mention that this experience caused me to have to call in all of the rebels to support. But I stand with what I know is true. And to me, that's revolution in its highest form. So it takes that. it all on. You did a great thread on braiding sweetgrass too. Oh right? yeah. Yes. Um, you did. It was. It was. It was. It was really, really good. I mean, I love braiding sweetgrass. I'm yes, practically yes. an apostle. Wonderful, yeah. lovely book. Me too. But you brought up some really good points. Did you take any heat for that? 
No. And I mean, okay. I tried really hard with that one to be really careful. You know, it's one thing for me to kind of say like, you know, screw Latour, we don't need to cite him. It's a whole other thing to engage with an indigenous woman's yeah. writing. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I was very thoughtful. And I mean, I love Robin Wall Kimmerer's work. Mm. Like I've taught it now for five years straight, like every term. Um, and I was actually like, I, I was really shocked when I had those realizations like I, I was literally out walking in the forest when I was like wait a minute she doesn't cite a lot of other indigenous scholars and you know what's going on structurally that would that would cause that and and so I wrote it out as a thread almost as much to like help me think out loud about like what is going on there and it you know, and so, um, but people have been really generous in their responses. And so, um, but it, you know, it, it's taught me that like, well, even the most incredible work still can't do everything. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so asking and, you know, and I think too, I've been working more and more in these sort of Western conservation spaces and seeing how, you know, indigenous work sometimes gets taken up by white biologists, scientists, you know, people who are doing this kind of environmental work. And you realize like, oh, they really love it when there's a single sort of person they can credit. They really love that narrative of like the single hero. Um, and yet so much of our work is just completely rooted in thinking together all the time in different ways and like putting pieces together um, that may not translate. And, you know, they can't say, I learned this from 70 different people. You know, they're not going to do that. Um, yeah. So but I, yeah, I, and that's, that's given me some new things to think about, about how do my team and I do our work, because um, we're doing fish, fish work, and um, how do I make sure I don't recreate those sort of like erasures in my own citation practice, so, but it's, not, you know, I'm not here to say, you know, this person did a, did a bad thing, it just, oh, wow, here's, I'm sure she wouldn't have even thought when she wrote the book that it would get taken up the way that it has, where it's just this like runaway you know, sort of hit that everyone, you know, everyone, everyone's reading it in, in Canada and the US at least. So <laughs> well, seven years after it was written, it hit the best, it hit the New York Times bestseller. Yeah. 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 People, it's, um, it's the gateway into mm -hmm. a new way of thinking. Yeah. It was my gateway. I, I definitely know when we started the podcast, sorry, sorry. When we started the podcast, you brought that book to my attention, Patty, Braiding Sweetgrass, and it was my gateway into understanding. So absolutely, I can see that happening. Yeah. It's just when, you know, when these things are gateways and then people stop there. Yes. And that's, I think, where you were talking about, because when I think about citational relationships in my book, you know, in, in you know, what, what, I, what I'm writing, I'm, I'm thinking about my own limited knowledge. And the fact that I'm quoting all of these other people that I'm referencing all of these other people is a recognition that I don't know this stuff all on my own. I mean, that's why we do citations, right? Because we don't know. Yeah. Things. And so what I want people to do is what I do. You, you know, when something particularly grabs me and I, they've cited it, then I go and I pick up that book. Yeah. And, and so yeah. In, <laughs> in that way, my book becomes a gateway to other books. Yes. And then I just joined Substack because of course I did. Nothing yeah. <laughs> else to do. Because one thing that I really enjoy is putting books in conversation with each other. And I did that with um, 
uh, we do this uh, till we free us and border and rule. I read them alternating chapters and then wrote an essay on it and had them in conversation with each other. You know, so that citational relationship and thinking about who we're quoting, it's that's what we're doing. We're putting these things in conversation with each other, seeing what happens and then and then developing something new. And then this is kind of my segue into your essay on, on fish. Um, fish hope and fish can end hope because although you know citing um traditional indigenous knowledge is getting a little bit more you know recognized you start with that that's where, yeah. that's where, that's where that essay starts with with Leroy and I'm just gonna read it because I sure. really <laughs> I, I just, I love it. I love it so much. And, and it, it, I had to stop and have a good think. So you're citing Leroy Little Bear and he says, we as humans live in a very narrow spectrum of ideal conditions. Those ideal conditions have to be there for us to exist. It's why, that's why it's very important to talk about ecology and the relationship. If these ideal conditions are not there, you and I are not going to last for very long. Just text Neanderthal, ask the dinosaurs, what happened to them? We asked one of our elders, why did the dinosaurs disappear? And he thought about it for a while and said, maybe they didn't do their ceremonies. And I love that <laughs> because it made me think about dinosaurs, their ancestors, really. Yes. It's related, if we're all related their ancestors of a kind and now we're putting them in our cars and that's not very respectful and you kind of get into that in the essay so can you talk about yeah. that a little bit because that was super intriguing and you're having a very similar reaction that I did when I you know when um a friend had seen him give that talk live and she wrote me and said Zoe you, as soon as that's online you have to see it you're going to love it because he brings up fish in that talk and and he's and I remember this because like, I almost haven't memorized I've watched that talk so many times now it's like my it's my origin story as a thinker like Leroy Little Bear has shaped me so deeply and I've never met him and he's like of all the scholars I can ever meet I really hope I get to meet Leroy Little because he's just he's so brilliant and um and so yeah and in that talk he talks about like you know nobody's talked about the fish a lot at this conference yet and I was like yes yes we have to talk about the fish but um from that part of the talk where he's talking about the dinosaurs like that 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 sort of just that part of the talk really turned my thinking on its head especially because I'm from Alberta I'm from Edmonton I have settler and indigenous family in you know from and in Alberta. My mom is a white settler and my dad is Métis. And I grew up immersed in the oil economy of Alberta and it's it's inescapable. It's just everywhere. It's everything. The oilers, you know, just, uh, you know, going to university in the early 2000s and in the engineering building, you know, all these rooms are, you know, sponsored by like <laughs> oil and gas companies and oil field services companies. And so um, that, that sort of like what he shared about the dinosaurs and ceremonies completely shifted it refracted my worldview completely and i started to think about wait a minute like in alberta we live in this place that is full of dinosaur bones because just just the way the geology has has worked and and we burn fossil fuels like our whole economy turns on this and what does that mean for our responsibilities and so, yeah, that that kind of led to some, you know, 
now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through that in another piece that I've submitted that hopefully will get past peer review, um, where I sort of asked some more deeper questions about like, what does that mean for us? Like what responsibilities does this invoke for us? And I, I brought, I bring in the work of um, uh, Métis scholar, um, Elmer Ghostkeeper, and then also um, a story that uh, Clicho writer Richard Van Camp shares about um, elders shared with him with permission a story about a trapper who became a, can a cannibal. I won't use the name, uh, <laughs> and uh, and that that there is sort of elders have speculated that maybe the oil sands in Alberta, uh, if they continue to dig, they might uncover what was buried there and that something was buried there to protect people. And so all these things, I sort of bring them together in this, this other paper that I, I hope will get published. Um, yeah, but you, you sort of had the same train of thought that I did. It was like, of course they're ancestors, like they lived before us. And, and, and I had never thought of them as like political agents or like, you know, having their own worlds where, where they would have, of course they would have had ceremonies, you know, like it just, yeah, that was a really transformative moment for me as an urban raised Métis person living drenched in oil in Alberta. And I'd never thought about, you know, the, the interior lives of the beings that had come, you know, millions of years before. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, thinking. <laughs> Carrie's like, yeah. I have to process this because I have a grandson who's got dinosaurs everywhere. <laughs> it, it really is an interesting thought. When you said, "Now we put them in my in our cars," I was like, "Wait, wait, wait a minute." Yeah, we do. Like <laughs> the, the yet again to me, what bring what that brings up is the interconnectivity, the interconnection that exists between all of us and how you know our our ancestry our relatives are from all different shapes forms and how and what i find is interesting even thinking zoe that you come from this anthro um this anthropological kind of background even thinking about those ancestors of ours who might have been two-footed who didn't make it through you know mm -hmm. And, and just this, this realm of how, when our worldview stays polarized on this moment, but yet we don't take into account all the gifts and connections that have come from that past. It's a really interesting space. Like my brain's going, I never, I never thought about <laughs> thanking the relic, the dinosaurs because you guys are the things that fuel our cars. And, and also then to juxtapose against that, I think about how once again, the system has used that against us as well. Do you know what I mean? Like we know there's so many things happening because we put gas in our cars. Yeah. There's so much dissension in the world and how we've all been displaced in the world because of this gas we wanna put in our, well, we didn't necessarily want to put it in, but that's just how things kind of rolled. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder about like, do they, if, if they can feel through the vast sort of like stretches of time, like, do they feel sorrow for how we're treating them? Or do they feel sorrow for us that we don't understand them as ancestors or don't think about them as ancestors in that sense? And so in this paper that I recently submitted, I also sort of argue that like, 
science claims dinosaurs as a kind of ancestor in that it like sort of the common ancestor of humankind or like, you know, that we stretch back to these ancient beings. But I argue that they, they claim a kind of ancestry without kinship. And so, and that's a very like white supremacist way of framing relationships is that, yes, I can claim this dinosaur or this being, but I don't have any obligations to them. And, and I get that, you know, I, I bring in Daryl LaRue and Adam Gaudry and other who talk, others who talk about white people claiming indigenous ancestry mm -hmm. contemporarily without kinship where they sort of say like, well, yes, I have an ancestor from the 1600s. There go, you know, thereby I am, you know, you have to honor me. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I try to tease that out. And that's where I sort of, I look to Elmer Ghostkeeper who talks about a shift in his own community in Northern Alberta between the sixties and seventies, where when he was growing up, you know, as a Métis person in that community. I think he's from Paddle Prairie and they, um, you know, he describes how they grew up working with the land, making a living with the land. But then when he came back in the seventies and oil and gas, like specifically gas exploration was happening and he found himself working in heavy machine operating uh, work. He found himself work making a living off the land and that just that shift from with and off shifted how he was relating to this land that gave him life and his family life and as he just so he did his master's at the University of Alberta in anthropology and his thesis is really beautiful and then he turned it into a book and I have to credit colleagues at the University of Alberta including my friend David Perrant who turned me towards Elmer's work and um, also just like really beautiful and I love getting to think with Indigenous scholars and thinkers from Alberta because it's not really a place you know I think when a lot of like people in other parts of the country think of Alberta, there's reasons they think about it as like a really messed up place. And like that, that is a fair assessment of the politics and the racism, I'm not excusing that. But there's also so much richness there. Like Alberta is a really powerful place. And, you know, and it, it is where all these dinosaurs are and, and this incredibly dynamic, like land and water and, and that's so, I'm just really grateful that that's where I get to think from. And I know like that's Catherine McKittrick, you know, asks people, where do you think from and where do you know from? And so my answer to that question is, you know, I know from Edmonton, which it's been called also Stabmonton, Deadmonton, you know, it, it has a lot of, uh, you know, negative connotations that have been ascribed to it, but it's home to me. It's on the North Saskatchewan river. It's, I love it. I don't live there right now, but I love it. <laughs> Identity is a poor substitute for relations. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what you're talking about when you're saying, you know, they recognize science recognizes them as kind of ancestors, you know, creatures that predated us and from whom we're descended. Um, but only, or well, they're descended in, in a kind of way. Um, yeah. Yeah. But as, but as progress, right? As part of that linear progress. So there's no relation. There's a, there's an identification without relationship. And mm -hmm. then I was thinking of kind of about my own experience because I had identity without relationship growing up. I was, you know, the brown kid in the white family. Um, my mom moved me south. I had no contact with my dad's, um, you know, with my Ojibwe family. And for me, that was very impoverishing this identity without relationship because other people identified me as native. You know, they looked at me and they saw a native person, 
but I grew up in Southern Ontario in the early seventies. Nobody, I didn't know there were reserves within a two hour drive. I had no idea. I thought all the Indians lived out West somewhere, you know, <laughs> no idea. And so to me, that felt like impoverishment. And so when people make those choices and they're choosing these relationships, the, you know, the, the, these identifications without relationship, it's like, why would you choose impoverishment? But they don't, they don't feel it like impoverishment because the relationship is one of exploitation. What can I, what can I extract from them by way of knowledge, by way of oil, by way of plastics, by way of, you, you know, le learning off the land instead of with the land, which kind of brings me to anthropology because yes. <laughs> it really confused me about you was that you study fish but you're an anthropologist and so that's obviously yeah. a whole field of anthropology because i always thought anthropology was like margaret mead studying mm. primitive, you know people living in shacks and you know kind of imagining what the world would have been like for you know these stone age people who somehow magically exist in the present day <laughs> so they're 21st century people not stone age people <laughs> you know? but just like that's kind of I think and I think that's where most people go when they think of anthropology so if you could please correct us well white anthropology is still very racist white anthropology is still like it, it's trying I study fish, so um, <laughs> how did I how did I get entangled in well, anthro anthropology? Fish. So the long story is that I started in biology, and you know that's in two thousand one, and it was not a space in two thousand one that was quite ready for indigenous knowledge yet, and I struggled. So like I was really good at science in my in 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 high school, and so everyone was saying you are a brilliant young woman. We need more women in biology and in the sciences. You're going to be a doctor like they were pushing me that direction so I was like I guess I have to do a science degree and I went in really excited because I I'm really fascinated by how the world works but the way they they were teaching biology I'm going to give them some credit I think things have shifted in 21 years or 20 years but the way they were teaching biology at that time you know half the class was aiming to get into med school you know, and the other half was maybe like really excited about like a specific topic that they were going to spend, you know, their time working on. Uh, and, but it, you know, it's just that experience of like 600 person classes, multiple choice exams, like that's just not how I work. And I now like in my late thirties understand that like, oh, I'm ADHD. And there's a, a very strong indication that I'm also autistic. And so like those learning modalities were just not working for me and definitely not working for me as an Indigenous person. So um, I was sort of gently, um, I had taken an anthro elective in the first year that I got like a, a nine in. It was on a nine point system at the University of Alberta at that time. And um, I like to joke that my first, my second year GPA was a four but it was on the nine point system. <laughs> so, for nines? Is that what Yeah, you're trying to get nines. And I was, I was not, I mean, it was a little higher than four, but I wasn't doing great. <laughs> so um, a mentor who I was working in his lab, uh, Alan Thompson, he said, he just sat me down one day and he said, you know, you're really passionate about people. Is there a way you could do a minor that will allow you to finish this degree but allows you to explore those sort of social aspects. And so we looked at my transcript and I'd done really well in anthro. And so I said, well, what if I did an anthro minor? And so I did. Um, and that was actually a real turning point for me because I took a class 
with uh, someone named Franca Boeg, who's, who's teaching at McEwen University now. And it was the anthropology of science. And it was, I think shortly after like the SoCal affair, where um, he like that, that scholar submitted like a sort of fake paper to a postmodern journal and he got it published. And then he revealed that he had like, it was fake. And, and anyway, so like the science wars had just, just kind of wrapped up. And so I came in in like 2004 and I was like, what science wars? And, um, <laughs> but I, but that was where I learned for the first time you know, that there was a whole field of study of like science and technology studies that was questioning science. And so we were reading like Thomas Kuhn and all, you know, and like these people, and, and that's where I first encountered Latour. And, and I realized like, wait a minute, I work in a lab. I'm one of these human, you know, humans shaping science. And it, it, it opened doors for me. So uh, not that anthropology was a perfect place to go because they were still, uh, like we were still forced to take like physical anthropology classes that still reify like physical characteristics. And I mean, at least they were teaching the problems in that, in that, and they were, you know, we learned about eugenics and, you know, so like, at least they were critiquing it, but uh, I'm, I'm not here to defend anthropology in any way, but the, the, so to fast forward, um, I found myself doing a PhD in anthropology, mainly because it was a space that appeared to be open to doing kind of like indigenous work. Um, it's debatable whether that was actually the case. My PhD, it was a really hard experience, but it, it, you know, it opened certain doors for me. And there was a turn in the last 20 years in anthropology towards something called like multi-species ethnography. And it became very trendy for anthropologists to work on animals. And so I just happened to kind of be there at the time that this movement was very, very popular. Um, and so when I said I wanted to work on fish, people were like, absolutely. <laughs> like, that is totally sure. <laughs> um, I don't think they necessarily expected me to go the direction I would, where I was also like, and also anthropology must be dismantled or white anthropology must be dismantled. <laughs> and, you know, like they were hoping I would just do a nice little phenomenological study of the fishiness of a place. and and you know be done with that and <laughs> but then I you know I really uh went in some different directions but I can't complain like I've been so lucky I've been funded people have supported me um you know who, who may have gone on to regret it because I wasn't quite what they thought they were getting but I've just been really fortunate to connect uh with amazing people through that experience and to connect with amazing like indigenous scholars as well and um so the answer is like I, I, I practice anthropology, but m my projects, everything we're working on is deeply interdisciplinary. So we have like journalists and architects and scientists and community leaders. And so I, I take what's useful. This is what Kim Talver often says, like she takes what's useful from anthropology, but she leaves the rest. And so, you know, um, and, and I really take that to heart because she does brilliant work and she's been able to kind of take some aspects of it that are useful. Um, but I don't, I, you know, I haven't read Margaret Mead. <laughs> like I haven't, I know, <laughs> I, I've had to teach some, you know, some critiques of her in my classes. Um, but yeah, like I'm not, I'm not someone who would like, die to defend anthropology as a discipline. But there's some really cool anthropologists doing cool work. Like there's some really cool, like the Association of Black Anthropologists in the US, like in the American Anthropology Association. Like there's so many cool anthropologists who are 
critiquing and dismantling the harmful aspects of the discipline. So I, I don't want to throw it all away because I do think there's really cool stuff happening. But um, yeah, so to answer your question, I kind of just fell into it. And then, you know, there were aspects of it that were useful that felt less harmful than biology. Um, but I've come back around to working much more closely um, with the sciences again, just from a very different angle. I'm not sure scientists would call me scientists. Sorry? What's fish anthropology? Um, well, I would say like, <laughs> like, so I, uh, my, like my PhD work was in the community of Polytech in the Northwest Territories. And I spent time hanging out with fishermen, um, just learning about how they've been applying their own laws to protect fish in their homelands. And so, um, so in that sense, like the thing that anthropology offers that some other disciplines don't is just, it affords a lot of time to just hang out and listen to people mm. tell their own stories. And it really values that. It values that experience of like people telling stories in their own words and spending time with people, you know, working in, you know, the context that they work in. And so those aspects of it, I think, can be helpful if they're approached, you know, thoughtfully and with a very clear understanding of the harms of the discipline and a decolonial, you know, a need for decolonization. But um, yeah, like I, the, I think part of the reason it's so weird to keep rehashing my PhD. I hope that nobody from that program listens. To, like, I mean, I have long since forgiven them. I'm, I've like, you know, uh, spiritually forgiven them. I have no, I have no anger. <laughs> but um, I think that like where was I going with that? I think that, yeah, there's aspects of it that can be very useful. Um, and, and, the, and the, just the opportunity to spend time with people is really valuable. And one of the things that was hard about my thesis, I think that's why they struggled with it, was that I wasn't just doing something that was legible to them. I was also going into the archives and looking at like, you know, 60 years worth of correspondence between the RCMP and the oblates of Mary Immaculate and other government and church actors who are talking about, you know, concerns about, um, you know, the fur trade economy had collapsed in the region in the 1930s and they were worried about how people were going to get food. And then fish become this really important role in that story because people were able to continue fishing even when um, other species were, you know, periodically scarce. And, and an elder that I had worked with um, through that project named Annie Alisiak had repeatedly um, reminded me that she said, you never go hungry in the land if you have fish. And, and each time she shared that, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then this other aspect of it would unfold, you know, um, as we were out on the land or even years later, I think back to that. I'm like, yeah, this is why we have to protect fish because they're one of the species that has been in abundance since time immemorial, even in, for at least in the Arctic and also in, in the prairies. Um, and, and for them to be in decline right now in the ways that they are is really alarming. And so Levi Little Bear points that out as well. He's, you know, they, they've survived longer than the dinosaurs, longer than Neanderthals. Fish have been around um, almost, well, about half a billion years, but they're barely surviving white supremacist colonial capitalism. So that should tell us something, that if something can survive all these other cataclysms, but it can't survive this, that something has to change. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers the question about like why anthropology, how do the fish fit in? But that sort of 
the fish, um, you know, I had done this very uh, quantitative research in my master's where we, we, we did interviews and, and uh, surveys and sort of asked questions about how people were navigating um, different, you know, economic and social impacts on their harvesting lives. Um, and it was through that experience that uh, people in Polytech friends were taking me out on the line to go fishing. And, and, and some women in the community said, you know, you know, not a lot of people have asked us about our fishing lives and we have a lot of knowledge. And, and so I, I, you know, when I started my PhD, I asked, um, you know, would you be interested if I did a project where I spent time with you, you know, learning about your fishing lives? And, and, and they said, yes, of course. <laughs> so, so it started out actually as a project on women and fishing, but then it grew into this project on law. And it, and, we, and it really, that was sort of like where it landed. Neat. That's, re that, that, that's really interesting. So, because you had made a comment centering Indigenous legal orders, and you've talked about this too, about Indigenous law. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, so two of the big, biggest sort of people who are working on these topics in Canada are Val Napoleon and John Boros, and they're at the University of Victoria. And um, you know, I was nearing the end of my PhD and I was still struggling to sort of frame the stories that people were sharing with me within the literature that was available to me in, we call it North Atlantic anthropology. So like UK, US, Canada anthropology. And, and then I heard John Burroughs give a talk where he talked about the dynamic but rooted aspects of Indigenous law. And it just like blew my mind. <laughs> like I just was like, of course indigenous people have a lot like I had been so like my mind frame was so colonized that like I couldn't see the law around me and Val Napoleon wrote a paper in 2007 that basically describes the same experience for some of her students who sort of like when she talked teaching when she was teaching indigenous law some students were really struggling to see the norms and protocols that we use in our communities as law and when I you know started to read her work and John's work and Tracy Lindbergh and other people's work, I realized like, oh, all of these protocols that people were talking about within my PhD research are law. And I, and so I had conversations with friends about like, you know, does it make sense for me to talk about this as law? And, and, and my friend said, yes. And, um, you know, in, in applying to his own harvesting life. And then I realized like, wait a minute, I also grew up with indigenous law as a Métis person and I didn't understand that that's what it was. And, and I'm not saying I fully understand what Métis law looks like because I think there's just a lot of questions um, that I can't answer, but you know, Val, um, Tracy, I was at a conference where Val, Tracy Lindbergh, um, Patty Labucan Benson, John Burroughs and a whole bunch of other people presented and Patty Labucan Benson and Tracy Lindbergh had talked about pre-law and how, you know, through what they've been taught from elders and knowledge keepers they work with, like one of the first laws in Cree law, at least on the prairies, is love. And then everything sort of builds from that. And, and, and any mischaracterizations are my own. So <laughs> I apologize to people who have far more teachings than me. Um, and I only know a little tiny bit, but 
th those were experiences that really shaped me because when I started to understand, well, of course, like this and, and Val's work has really focused a lot also on stories and how stories contain law and, and like, you know, instructions and guidance. And, and that just, that completely shifted how I was thinking about the work I was doing in Polytech and the stories that were shared with me. Um, and it has gone on to shape how I think about the work my team and I are doing now about how do we, how do we shift public perceptions of our responsibilities to fish just sort of collectively like indigenous and non-indigenous communities in Alberta, especially where we're dealing with almost every fish population in Alberta is in trouble in one way or another. And, um, and so, you know, one of the questions we're, we're asking in our work is, well, what would it look like if we, if we really focused on fish stories, both indigenous and non-indigenous, and what if we, and this is a concept we get both from Robin Wall Kimmer, but also from Kutcher Rizingbaldi, where we say we want to restory fish futures, and we want to restore fish habitats through stories. And you know, and what I've learned from Val Napoleon and all these other amazing thinkers is that of course stories are components of law, or um, she cites Louis bird who who says stories are good to think with and and that is a sentiment that other people have sort of echoed it like julie crookshank has said that and del himes all these people you know stories are good to think with and so that's what we're trying to bring into our work on protecting freshwater fish in alberta and beyond is well what stories do we tell about fish and and if and when we start from that place of telling stories about fish you start to sort of learn little bits about like different experiences people are having and um and when you bring those stories together, then you're having really interesting conversations of like, well, what do people in Edmonton experience of the fish? They may not see them because so many populations have been impacted by urban development. And um, in the 1950s, Edmonton still put raw sewage in the North Saskatchewan. So, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm making sense. <laughs> but, so, but for me, Indigenous law, um, you know, drawing from the work that folks at UVic and elsewhere are doing, you know, Val Napoleon sort of says law. I wish I could pull the quote out directly, but there's a series of videos that they produced for the Indigenous Law Research Unit. And in one of them, Val gives this really elegant explanation of what law is. And she, I, if I can, if I can paraphrase it from memory, you know, it's sort of to the effect that law is the way that we like think together and reason together and work through like problems together. And so that's something we're trying to capture in our work is how do we work through, you know, the experience of being people together. Mm -hmm. Well, Carrie, yeah. that makes me think of, of like, because it carries the uh, Caribbean, you, you know, and fish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so funny you brought that up because that was exactly what I was thinking. Now, one of my native islands, my father is from Barbados. And so we have the migration of the flying fish. It's actually one of our national dishes. Amazing. And, oh, and you know, I that is such an integral part of who we are as Bayesian people and, and just what is our space of of existence, like the, the migration of the flying fish comes through and it used to set even the patterns for how um, we existed. I remember my grandmother, uh, my, my grandfather used to fish, but he was more like a, it was more a hobbyist thing for him, but he'd go out onto the waters early, early mornings, right? 
and or they go down by the fish markets and then gather the fish and come home, come back to the house. Um, and then we would all, the, the women in particular, we would all get together and clean and you know have our conversations around this frying fish. And then we make like what we call cuckoo, cuckoo which is um, our national dish. It's like a cornmeal dish, which is very much uh, something that Africans brought over as slaves. And we make this cornmeal that you'd eat with it. Um, and you'd eat cuckoo and flying fish. And so uh, when, you, when we think about the numbers and the scarcity that is happening, because I know even the migration patterns are starting to shift in Barbados, and it's not in the same abundance. You know, our oceans are being affected all over the world. And I had never, you really brought home to me the reality that the fish have survived, you know, cataclysms, they, comets have hit the earth, you know, <laughs> destroyed, um, you know, atmospheres and fish have survived. And yet that is a humbling thing to sit and think that we are in such a fragile point in our existence that if our fish go. I had never even put it into that perspective until, well, I, I've, I've thought it, but you really brought it home for me. And um, even for me that the fragility of the patterns of our lives, you know, when I think Barbados, I immediately think frying fish, like the two are synonymous for me. And all of that is shifting and changing in the way that we're in our experience now. So, yeah, <laughs> it's humbling in a lot of ways. Well, in the eel, <coughs> no, we've talk, I've talked with um, uh, Elan Kuchi. Uh, she's doing some work. <clears throat> uh, she was doing some work on eels and how they used to migrate from the Caribbean up down this up the coast, down the St. Lawrence Seaway, up the Trent Water System, all the way to Lake Nipissing. And now, of course, with, you, you know, with the, with the canals and, and the way things are closed off, that connection. So the eel features in artwork and stories all the way from Nipissing to the Caribbean and just the ways that connects us, even though we may not have had contact in any other way, eel, the eels did. The eels mm -hmm. carried our stories with them. And there's just, yeah, it's just really sad. It's just, it's, just, it's just really, so I just think it's really cool that you're, you know, you're working with on stories. What are our stories about fish? And I saw how excited you got. Carrie's our yeah. <laughs> I love fish stories. <laughs> I was just leaning into that. See how much of a passion it is for you. And it's delightful. It absolutely is delightful to see you just like the, the people listening to the podcast. She lit up this whole <laughs> space. Our Zoom call was lit up with the effervescence of Zoe as she was talking oh. about this. And, and it's that passion, though, that I also want to mention because I think that's the stuff that saves this space. I think it's you talking about it with that kind of exuberance, with that kind of passion that has actually caused me to be interested in ways that I might not have been before. And it's only, I think, with this interest, with us calling this to light, that maybe we can shift what is happening. Because as you said, this is going to affect all of us in the long yes. run. <laughs>
Well, like, here. <laughs> I don't know that I want to be on a planet without fish. Like I, cause that is a, that is a, yeah. Can like, even be what? on a planet without fish. And I don't know, I don't know that, well, like humans have never existed without fish. Fish have existed without us, but we haven't existed without them. And yeah, and these are, you know, and, and I, there's a, there's a lot of people who are really passionate about fish. Like I, I'm inspired by my late stepdad, who was a biologist, who was just deeply passionate about fish. And, you know, and so like, there's a lot of really cool people working on these things. Um, but for, you know, and, and you know, there's other people, it's like, it's worms or snakes or bees, but for me, it's fish. Like I just, you know, and I love hearing fish stories. Like now I'm like, oh, I've never seen a flying fish, you know, and I, they, I bet they're amazing. I bet they're so amazing. It's really long. Their fins look like literally like wings and they're long and they're kind of majestic, right? They're tiny. They're not that big, but their their fins take up like double the space of them. And they're really cool when you see the whole thing. And then we used to like cut them open and then they would be seasoned up. They taste really delicious too. Kind of a meaty fish. But yeah. <laughs> there's, as I said, like with even that conversation, look at all the memories. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of my grandmother and being in her kitchen and her directing me on how, you know, the precision cut to make, to be able to skin it perfectly, to pull the, the spine out so that the fillet stayed together. And, you know, the recipe that went into sometimes you would, cause sometimes you would bread them. And so, you know, um, that all of those memories and, and even that with it, sometimes we'd eat um, split peas mm. that we would, that would be harvested from the garden and, and just our gunga peas from the garden that we would have grown. And so all of those memories get tied into that space of when I'm thinking about these fish and what it meant to the normity of the experience of my grandmother who is now an ancestor, you know? Uh, it's, um, it's important because it is more than just our survival. These are our memories. These are our histories. These are the things that have created the very space of who we are as humans, as relatives, as families, as mothers, as fathers, our, our societies. And I, I just, I, I just um, I'm recognizing how interconnected and yet fragile those connections are. We truly have to respect our fish relatives. They created so much of who I am today. Well, and that's that relationship, right? Just you know, going back to that thing with uh, that Kim had said that our identity without relationship is just such an empty impoverished thing you know we go to the grocery store and you know and it's it, it's just so thin when you when you you know when you really think about it and dig into it and you know and you spend that time hearing their stories and seeing how the, you know, and, and I love that they said, nobody asks us our stories. And they're like, hey, would you like me to ask you? And they're like, yeah. All the scientists were coming, like at that time, now more fishing work has happened, which is great. Yeah. Like people need to, like, I, I, everyone should be able to do fish work. But um, at the time, like most of the climate change scientists and the wildlife biologists who were coming up were really focused on like the megafauna, the charismatic megafauna. So they were coming up and they wanted to know about polar bears and caribou. And like all of those are incredibly important species. So I'm not here to diminish that. But 
you know, the thing that was exciting about fishing. And I think I'm trying to remember the name. There was a woman who had written a, like her PhD thesis, um, uh, you know, before me at, at Aberdeen and she worked in the Eastern Canadian Arctic in Nunavut. And, uh, you know, her big finding was everybody fishes. It's not just men, you know, it's kids. It's, it's, a, it's an intergenerational, like joyful thing that uh, people participate in, 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 the, um, in Nunavut. And, and that was very true in Palatok as well. And still is like fishing is just a really big part of community life. And I was so lucky to get to spend time you know, and I really have to credit my friends, Andy and Millie Thrasher and their family who took me out fishing through that whole time that I was there and took me to lots of their favorite fishing places. And I just got to spend time with them, like their family. Um, and it was a lot like spending time with my dad, my Métis dad, teaching me how to fish, you know, on small lakes in Alberta, much smaller lakes, much different. And, and it was, you know, politics so cool because like, I write about this in one of my articles or like Millie, Millie took my Nalgene one day and was like, here, and just like dipped it into one of the lakes and was like, here, here's some water. Just that, like that incredible experience of like, wow, I can just drink straight out of this lake. Like just the difference in, you know, what that feels like and, and that that's an experience people used to have all the time, um, you know, and so in different places. So I just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for, you know, I just, that was a really amazing experience. And, and yeah. <laughs> bringing to mind, I, li I listened to the Media Indigena podcast and a, a while ago, Candace Collison was talking about really missing the salmon from home. Because mm -hmm. uh, she's a uh, uh, Totlin from Northern BC. And she was talking about really missing the salmon from home that, you know, she, it tastes different mm -hmm. because it eats differently, right? And so what it eats and where it lives affects how it tastes. And salmon isn't just salmon. And I mean, like we live in wine country, right? And so we know that the, the wine from the one part of the region tastes different from the exact same grapes grown in a different because it's digging its roots into different stuff. And so, and, and so it tastes, but it was just that, anyway, that just called it to mind what she, what she was talking about that these kind of, intense ways that we can be connected to and shaped by place yes how connected it all is and how important that is how really really important that is and and, and we forget that we've got I mean people in the chat are just really loving you Zoe oh really <laughs> oh, I wasn't even looking I say so um like and and a thing that you know I think fish can be sites of new memories as well like that if we work together across many different communities, like fish still have a lot to teach us collectively. And, you know, my dad has memories when he was a little boy growing up in Edmonton, that it was, it was um, who he remembers fishing growing up was his friend who was from a Chinese Canadian family who had set lines for suckers right by the high level bridge. And so, you know, here's my dad, a Métis kid, and his memories of fishing in the city are from a Chinese Canadian family. And, you know, that kind of like exchange of knowledge in, in ways that maybe um, like white settlers weren't really paying attention to who was making relations with the rivers. And there's a lot of stories there that I think haven't been explored necessarily around. And so there's, I'm forgetting his name, but there was this really cool 
urbanist in Edmonton who was doing a cool project where he he's from the sort of like the Chinese community in Edmonton and he was connecting with elders because both Chinese immigrants and um, indigenous community members in Edmonton both relied on the sturgeon and other fish in the river and so he was collecting stories across both indigenous and immigrant experience from the like early 1900s of how people engaged with the river and so you know i i'm also very I, you know, I think that there's restoring to be done too that displaces the white settler imaginary that they are the voice of the fish. <laughs> and that actually so many other communities also have relationships with fish and that those stories don't get centered in a lot of the like conservation science and other narrative, you know, there is that real dichotomy, like the, uh, you were talking about duality versus dichotomy. I was catching up with some of your tweets today and you have really good points about, so I, I wanna make sure I use the right terminology that I'm not doing the conflating that you were pointing out, but <laughs> you know, there's a, that settler indigenous duality or dichotomy gets emphasized in a lot of conservation work in Canada to the exclusion of black histories and other histories that are really important to understanding who has relationships to the water, who has relationships to the fish. And so, yeah, I just think that th that's another reason like fish stories are so exciting to me because everyone has some kind of story, whether it's beautiful stories like Carrie's or, you know, some people don't like fish and don't have a, a positive relationship to it. And that's okay too. Like that, um, you know, that, but that fish, I, I keep, you know, I sort of say like one of my little taglines for our work is like every part of Canada is a fish place. Um, just to remind, you know, the government <laughs> that they can't, they can't, um, you know, sort of, uh, recklessly harm fish habitats, you know, in the name of economic development that, you know, like the fish shaped this country, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. This has been so interesting, like really surprisingly interesting because I find your Twitter threads so interesting. And I was really intrigued by an anthropologist who studies fish. That made no sense. Yeah. <laughs> I find now I understand how those two things go together. And now I'm kind of like, well, of course that goes together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, just, I definitely got to follow you on Twitter. Okay. I, I'm going to, I need to know, can you shout you out for anybody else who is listening? You sure. got to follow Zoe on Twitter. What is um, it? It's just Zoe S. Todd. So Z O E S T O D D. I Dr. Dr. Fish Philosopher. Yes. And I do. <laughs> I do have a doppelganger named Zoe H. Todd. And I just have to give her a little credit because uh, she did her degree at Carleton right. And she graduated right when I was hired. And then she oh, moved okay. to Edmonton when I moved to Ottawa. And so we uh, uh, and sometimes she works, I think she's currently working for PBS in the US right. and people will email me and be like, you did such an incredible story on the news. And I'm like, it's not me. It's the other Zoe Todd. She's brilliant. Follow her. <laughs> so I, I just really feel like this was an intro to, uh, Absolutely. you know, to the work that you do and to the. The things that the, the important things about the ways that the waters connect us and the fish and I mean I'm thinking about all the memory that fish nation holds. Mm -hmm. Right, like right from you know, I, I read uh, "Undrowned" by Pauline Gum, which isn't fish; it's mammals, um, but still they're in water and, and 
you know, the relationships and the memories that they hold. Some of these beings are so old, right? Like they, they're 200 years old, some of these whales. And, you know, what kind of memories of us are they holding? And, you know, just these extraordinary lives and stories. And so I just, I'm just so, this was just so much fun. You're just so <laughs> and you, I, I absolutely I, loved it. You are yeah. a breath of fresh air. It was an amazing <laughs> amazing talk i just want to give a little shout out there's a ton of people doing cool fish work so deb mcgregor at york um uh tasha beads who's a water walker and doing her phd at uh, trent and um there's a there's a scholar named andrea reed at ubc who's doing really cool coastal fish stuff and um, yeah, there's just some really cool people. And then my whole fish, freshwater fish futures team, like Janelle Baker, you know, I, there's just really cool people. And I want to make sure they get credit because they're doing cool stuff. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. 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 You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook and the website www.med4r.com. Don't forget to rate, share, and support us by buying us a coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash payyourrent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S dot C-A. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Curiosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless.